I want you to think of a moment in your life where it felt like the, like the bottom was about ready to fall out. A moment where life was either so difficult or the things that were happening to you were so painful that you began to ask yourself some very difficult and pointed questions. Questions like, what in the world is going on? Questions like, what's, what's the meaning of all this? Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you know that like, those events, they, they create some really deep and penetrating questions. Some of you came to faith in Christ because of those moments. A, a hard thing happened in your life, God got your attention, you took a hard look in the mirror and you started to wonder, like, who am I? If you're a follower of Jesus, there are times when following Christ is costly. And in those moments, there's, there's questions that surface. Questions like, do I really believe in Jesus? What if, what if this costs me my, my job or this friendship? Can I, can I be content with that? Questions like, I, I read the Bible, but is it, is it really true? Like, can I bank my life on this? Can I, can I really trust the Lord? If you've ever walked through any kind of difficulty, you know that those are the kind of questions that emerge, and I wanna suggest to you that there are questions that happen in the midst of our exile as Christians that are really important and really critical. Our text this morning in 1 Peter 2 addresses that not only from an individual perspective, but from a community perspective. In other words, what are the kind of questions that a group of exiles need to understand and know as they walk through their points of difficulty. If you're joining us for the first time, we're in the middle of this series on 1 Peter. We're trying to figure out what does it mean to be an exile? What does it mean specifically to be a Christian exile? Meaning that there are people who name the name of Christ they are in the midst of this culture and they're called to be different. And when that actually happens and there are effects and costs to that, the question then is, so how do we think about that? What are the thoughts that need to run through our mind individually and then even corporately? Maybe you were part of a church that went through a really hard season. Maybe you're part of this church during a really hard season. And, and the question becomes, like, is, it, is following Jesus really worth it? This morning what I want to do is to help you see in 1 Peter 2 how this text serves as a, as a bit of a spiritual reset and it answers three key questions that I think happen in an exile moment when you are called by God to identify that I follow Jesus and then there's some effects. Some of you need this sermon because of what you're going with, what's going on in your life right now. Some of you are gonna need this sermon in some point in 2017 when God asks you to kind of cross the line and, and identify I'm a follower of Jesus and then everything that happens. Like there's questions that are gonna run through your mind when that happens. Here's the three questions we're gonna wrestle with. Number one, what is God's plan? Number two, who am I or who are we? And third, what is my mission? Why am I here? 
So I think understanding those three questions are really important. They serve sort of like a, a, a compass, north, south, east, and west, as it relates to how do you navigate through an exile. And I wanna suggest to you that if you don't know the answers to those questions, then when the exile comes your way, you won't know the way forward. But if you can get your head and heart around these three questions, I think that when the moment comes and you gotta, you gotta lay it down, you gotta identify that you're a follower of Jesus and it proves costly, these are the things that help you walk through that season. Let's, let's walk through these. First question, what is God's plan? Verse four identifies for us God's overarching plan. And namely, it is that he aims to form Christ-likeness in those that have identified with Jesus. In other words, God's aim is to make each of us and collectively as a church, to make us Jesus worshipers, Jesus followers, and those who look like Jesus. The beauty of heaven is going to be that we share in the glory of Christ, and the only reason we have it is because of him. So this plan involves first the worship of Jesus. Look at verse four. He says, as you come to him, a living stone. Now, him is in reference to verse three. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, it's in reference to what it means to be a living stone. I'll unpack that a moment. And then specifically what verse five says of to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through, here it is very specifically, Jesus Christ. So, the him here is Jesus, that God's aim for exiles is to have their hearts, their minds, and their worship focused on who Jesus is. That's what it says, as you come to him, that's a, a phrase used in the Old Testament for coming together in worship. It's used in the book of Hebrews as to how we are to draw near to God. So coming near to him, coming close to him, coming to him means that our focus, our attention, our affections are focused on Jesus. So the focus of our exile is Jesus Christ. Why him? because he's the centerpiece of redemption. He's the one who's made salvation possible. He's the one that deserves all glory and honor. And without Jesus, there is no forgiveness. Without Jesus, there is no cleansing. Without Jesus, there's no right relationship with God. And the fact of the matter is, is that Christian exiles are exiles because they love Jesus. He's more lovely, more desirable, more attractive, and more appealing than anything else in all of the created order, and that's why suffering the loss of anything in light of what's been gained in Christ is worth it. So what, what, what an exile is, is somebody who's given their heart and life to Christ such that any loss, any difficulty, any awkwardness, any persecution is seen in light of the beauty of who it is that Jesus has been to us. And what happens is that this, this unites the body of Christ. This, this makes us God's people, and the plan is about coming to him. It's about the exaltation of him. And this is why for some of you, the idea of being in exile is a bit intimidating because the reality is your affection for Jesus isn't strong enough, isn't built up enough 
so that when you have to choose between honoring Christ or being thought of well by your friends, uh, when, it, when it comes to doing this for his glory versus your own, there's this, this battle of what's happening inside of you. A number of years ago at my former church, there was a family who was gonna go visit with some extended family members and I was praying for them because of how difficult it was gonna be and they, they said, you know, it's really hard. We go in, we try and pour grace upon grace on, this, on our family members and it never works. So how do we think about going to do something that's right but doesn't work? And my answer to them was this. As you leave and get in the car, look at one another, husband and wife, and just say, we did this for Jesus. We didn't do this so that it would change them. We didn't do this so that um, they would think well of us. We didn't do this so that there would be some sort of uh, net effect. We, we, we hoped all those things would be true, but at the end of the day, we did this for him. This is about him. This is about our, our love to Jesus. We offer this to him, and when in the midst of your exile you experience difficulty or challenges, what Peter is doing here is anchoring us to the central focal figure of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, namely Jesus. God's plan involves the exaltation of Christ, not the exaltation of us. Here's the second thing in this plan. It says, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, but notice that this living stone is rejected. So notice that contrast. On the one hand, Jesus is chosen and precious. He's loved by the Father. He's chosen by the Father, and on the other hand, he's rejected. Friends, this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. It is this contrast that in one respect, you are greatly loved, you're chosen by God, and at the same time, you're rejected. And so, if you understand this, then that means that when you walk into life and you experience the reality of this, you're not experiencing anything abnormal. This is the reality of what it means to be a Christian. That you're loved by God, you're chosen by him, that that all your sins have been cleansed, you're loved deeply, and you're also rejected by others. And that contrast is exactly what happened to Jesus, and Peter is saying, and this is how you're going to be treated as well. This mindset is really helpful because I think there's sometimes we get in a mindset, don't we, that, that if we're rejected, we either have done something wrong or something is terribly wrong because after all, if we're doing what we ought to be doing, then everyone ought to like us and love us. But Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. In fact, there's perhaps some who are hearing this message today and like, there's so many people who speak well of you because you never draw a line. You never say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, that, that's, not my, that's not how I think about morals. I'm sorry, but I, I, I don't think there's multiple ways for forgiveness. I think there's only one. And you don't, you don't do any of that, and so as a result, people like you, everything's great, and you're happy, but the fact of the matter is you're not experiencing the kind of exile that you should because Jesus was chosen and rejected, and in some respects, to be a follower of Jesus means that we experience the same thing. Isn't this what every parent tries to teach their children at some level? That look, to be a person in the world means that kids are gonna be unkind, teachers are gonna perhaps be unfair, you're gonna be misunderstood. Like, this is what it means to be a human being in the world, and therefore, now we have to figure out how to deal with it. Part of helping kids to grow in maturity is to realize that this is what it means to to grow up. What Peter is identifying here is We are loved by God, 
but also rejected by people in the same way that Jesus was because, look at what he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, verse five, you yourselves like living stones. So he, he connects the, the metaphor of Christ being a living stone to them themselves. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. So the other part of God's plan is that we're being built together into Christ likeness. In the same way that Jesus is a living stone, so the church made up of individual believers are also like him in this living stone quality. They have a a life to them which is connected to the life of Jesus, that that, that God is making them collectively into a spiritual temple, and that spiritual building that God is creating has the characteristics of Jesus. Jesus. That he's the living stone, and he says, you yourselves like living stones. So that means that when the church works or when the gathering of the exiles is what it should be, that there's something bigger than themselves that's happening. That together they're being built into the likeness of Jesus. So then, then the question becomes, when an exile moment happens and you experience the dividing line of life, and when you see firsthand, no, God is doing this in order to form and frame me into Christ's likeness. The question then becomes, is that what you really want? Or do you just want a life without any tension, without any conflict, without having to think through hard issues? Do you just not want to be bothered with the difficulties that come with following Jesus? Because what Peter is indicating throughout this entire book is that to be a Christian fundamentally is to be in exile, and that what God is doing is trying to form and frame us into the image and likeness of Christ, that he's, he's building us up, that every local church is an expression of what it means to be built up into the likeness of Jesus. But if you don't value that process of being built up into Jesus, you will have a struggle enduring. Some of you, the reason that joy is gone from your heart right now about the trouble that you're in is because you don't really value, you don't love that Jesus is forming his likeness in you. He's he's shaping it, he's chiseling things off, and there is freedom and endurance that can be found when you open your heart wide open and say, look, Lord Jesus, at the end of the day, it's about you, not about me, it's about me becoming like you, and you can use anything in my life, including the loss of these things, or to make me like you, and that's what I want. And then finally, the plan, God's plan, involves a divine reckoning, and by that I mean there is a a clear divide. There are those who believe and those who do not. There are those who are under God's mercy, and there are those who are under God's judgment. There are those who obey, and there are those who disobey. Look at what he says in uh, verse six. Let's skip ahead, we'll come back to parts of verse five. For it stands in scripture, and what Peter does here is he quotes three Old Testament passages which are all related to judgment. And the contrast is clear and stark. There are those who believe, and those who believe are not put to shame. They're honored, and those who do not believe stumble, and they disobey. So there's, there's people who are 
in and those who are out, those who believe and those who don't. He says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You know what that means? It means that all your life you put your trust in Jesus, you put your trust in Jesus, and people, when they slander you and when they're unkind and you hold your tongue and you believe as we'll see in a moment that or later on in, throughout our study in first peter that we continue entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly in the latter part of first peter chapter two and you do that throughout the course of your life and you just choose to be godly when other people aren't you ever had it where you ask someone else's forgiveness and you're expecting them to reciprocate You're like, oh man, I was so wrong, please forgive me. They're like, oh, yeah, you're right, I forgive you. And then you're like. (laughs) No, this is when you ask my forgiveness, right? But that never comes. And you walk away from that conversation with this hurt, like seriously, they don't know that they hurt me? They don't, they don't know that happened, and you, you choose to cover that in love because you did it for Christ, not so that they would acknowledge they're wrong, because there's nothing worse than asking someone's forgiveness so that the other person will ask for forgiveness. And that's not legit repentance. And when we do that, what we're doing is we're banking our life on the fact that one day God's gonna settle all accounts. God saw that, and there'll be a moment in time when you're honored for that There'll be a time when you're honored for believing, and the Bible says that you'll not be put to shame, which means that you'll stand before Christ, and because of the beauty of what you believe in the promises of God's word, that you'll be honored, verse seven. And yet, there's this other side of the equation that says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and they stumble because they disobey the word. So on the other side, there's this this line of judgment. And what happens is that living as an exile means that you know that someday God's gonna make all this right. And he hasn't made it all right right now, but you believe that one day he's going to, and that because you believe that, you can let go of your need to get revenge, your need to be the personalized version of the Holy Spirit for everybody else, your need to be sure that you get your pound of flesh, and you can release unfair treatment. How can you release unfair treatment? Because one day God's gonna make it all right. That's how you believe in the divine reckoning that there is some day that God is going to make all of this right. Have you ever thought how many people, like maybe you're in a large gathering, like a football game, maybe at the Lucas Oil Stadium or at a basketball game. Have you ever thought, looking at that crowd of people, how many of these people are, are converted followers of Jesus? I often think of that. I almost wish you could like, like turn the lights off and have every follower of Jesus like glow, right? <laughs> and, like, and like those who like are kind of follower of Jesus, like their glow is like half glow, right? And then just, just to see like where, where are we at? Like where, where, where's the population of Indianapolis at? Every person you come in contact with today will either be a believer or a non-believer. And what Peter is identifying here is that There is this divide between those who believe and those who don't. But there's a future day of judgment coming when God will make right all wrongs. He will make everything just and everything unfair will once and for all be dealt with. 
Do you know how important that is when someone gets in your grill and you gotta choose to respond righteously? If you don't believe that there's coming a future day of reckoning, you're just gonna try and be your own God and take your own vengeance and do whatever it is that you think you need to do in that moment to be able to get what's fair. You gotta believe in a future reckoning. You gotta believe that Christ indeed is worthy of suffering loss. You gotta believe that Christ's likeness is better than saying what I wanna say in this moment or not being identified as a Christian or going under cover, so to speak, at work or in the neighborhood. There's this, this, this reality of understanding God's plan. You see, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, this, this passage hopefully understands, helps you to understand what it means to live out Christianity. And I'm sure you've seen some people do it really poorly. And I'm sorry for that, I really am. What Peter's identifying here is that followers of Jesus understand this overarching plan. They love Christ. He's changed them. And if you're not a Christian yet, I, I would love to be able to talk with you and help you understand what it means that Jesus has done for us so that even imperfectly, we're still trying to live out this beautiful passion that I want to be like Christ. I want to be like Christ. I want to be like Christ as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulties, because God's plan is that I would come to Jesus and bow at his feet and say, all of creation and all of redemption and all of my life and all of the loss and all of the difficulties and all the awkwardnesses are all for you and your glory. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's the plan. That's the plan. The question is whether or not you remember the plan when there's a line and you gotta step over it. And when that line presents itself, you've got about two seconds to be reminded, this is the plan. This is why I'm here. Secondly, the question, who are we? A really important question. This relates to the issue of identity. Because there's nothing like suffering or difficulties or a line in the sand that, that really begs the question, like seriously, who are we? Are we Christians or not? Am I a follower of Jesus or am I just... Do I just say things that sound like it? Like, this is when it really matters. Like, right now, and when that happens, when you cross that line, you're like, okay, here we go. Who knows what's gonna happen? You gotta know who you are so deeply in your core that it eclipses the fear of what might happen. So what Peter does in this text is he uses beautiful language that's connected to the Old Testament and even to Jewish identity, and he begins to apply it in a spiritual sense to these folks who are Gentiles. These, these folks who have become exiles in their Gentile experience are now called the people of God. And even though they're not Jewish, they, they share in the mission and the blessing of God. Now, it's my view, not that these Gentiles or that the church has somehow replaced Israel, Romans chapter 11, I think, bears out that God has a plan for the people of Israel, but rather it tells us here that these Gentiles, like all Gentiles, are now grafted into the promises of God in terms of what it means to be the people of God. So what does he say here? He uses rich, beautiful language to help them understand what their identity is. First, he calls them living stones, and he says that they're built up into a spiritual house. Do you know what that means? It means that God is in the process of building them up into a temple for his presence in the same way that the temple was central and special in a Jew's life, so they as the body of Christ. God is doing equally significant things in their 
local gathering of God's people as what he was doing in the temple. Now for us, it's kind of hard to understand how important and central and, and glorious the temple experience was, how central it was to Jewish life. And what, Paul, what Peter rather is doing here is helping these people know that as special and as wonderful and awesome as that was, God's doing something equally special and awesome in your midst. He's, he's building you up into a spiritual house. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter two, that this whole structure, this is verse 21 of Ephesians two, this whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here's what that means. It means right now, today, this Sunday, God by his Spirit is on the move. That God wants to do supernatural things change in people's lives. He wants to help you see your sin more clearly and lead you in a different path. He wants to make you a new and different person today. And whether that's incremental because you're a follower of Jesus or that because God wants to move you from darkness into light immediately and radically change your life for the rest of your life, that can happen right now in this very moment. In the same way that God's, God's spirit came and his glory descended on the temple in the Old Testament, he says now that this gathering of God's people is a, a spiritual house, that they're being built into something that's beyond themselves. Right now, by God's spirit, he is inhabiting this very place and building us up into something greater than ourselves. This is more than just a gathering. This is more than just a sermon. This is more than just a congregational worship set. This is more than just a Sunday morning. This is where God's spirit comes and when he illumines your heart and mind through the word, that's something unbelievable. Their identity is that they're a part of a spiritual house. He then says that they are priests. Verse five, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you go on to verse nine, you'll see that he says they are a royal priesthood. This is an unbelievable thing to say because even in the Jewish people's minds and heart, to be a priest was a very small sliver of the population. You had to be born in the right family and then if you were born in the right family, there was all this training and then this purification that had to happen and it was only the priests who were allowed to offer these sacrifices. The people brought their sacrifices, but the priests were the only ones who could offer acceptable sacrifices to God. And now he says, because of Christ, you're all priests. You're all holy. You're all chosen people. You're all able to come into God's presence. It means you don't need an intermediary anymore. You can pray, you can seek the Lord, you can read the word, that, that there's a priesthood of every believer, that you have the same authority that I do. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't give me any more authority than what you have. You have the word, you have Christ, you have everything you need. And what Peter is saying is God's done something unbelievable in you that when you come and you get on your knees and you cry out to Christ, it's the same kind of power as the Old Testament priest going into the Holy of Holies. It's just as special it's just as powerful, and you have an intimacy that the Old Testament saints would have longed to be able to have. So when you feel the pains of rejection and you're driving away in your car and you're crying out to Jesus and you're saying, do you understand what's going on? It's as though you've walked into the Holy of Holies. Then he says this, you're a chosen race, verse nine, a holy nation. This particular identity marker is really important and it has some implications in light of this weekend. 
For the Jewish people, race and nation were one and the same. To be born a Jew meant you were part of the nation of Israel, and Gentiles, by definition, were all those who were non-Jewish. There were those who were in, Jews, and those who were out, Gentile. And what Peter does remarkably is he extends this metaphor now, not just beyond the borders of Israel, but he actually calls these Gentiles a chosen race and a holy nation. He calls them a holy nation. And what is he getting at here? He's getting at what makes the church so beautiful and so powerful, namely that the gospel has the power to get underneath the most obvious and apparent categories by which we divide ourselves and identify ourselves. Nations have boundaries and ethnicities have particular characteristics that cause us to be divided. And by calling these people a chosen race and a holy nation, Peter is indicating that the gospel is able to get underneath, listen, the most significant and the strongest barriers and divisions that exist in culture. You see, these exiles, they didn't stop being Gentiles. Jews didn't stop being Jews. Instead, what happens is the the gospel gets underneath and provides an identity that's underneath and more foundational than all other identities. This, This new spiritual identity then serves to unite people that the culture would look at and say, wait a minute, you are incredibly different. You're different ethnicities, you're different nations, you're different backgrounds, different socioeconomic groups, different gender, and yet underneath all of that, while that may be true, is something even greater that brings these people together. Here's what Paul said in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ. And if Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring, heir according to the promise. So Monday is Martin Luther King Day. It's a good place on this Sunday just to acknowledge that this text speaks into what's going to be celebrated around our country. Because while our nation has made progress in relations between ethnicities, we still have a long way to go. The wound of slavery has left a scar on our nation that is still tender and sensitive and painful. It's a terrible story of inhumane injustice. And as a result, ethnic divisions are still a part of our culture, and in some cases, they are still systemic in their essence. Now, how does 1 Peter 2 relate to that? 1 Peter 2 shows us the potential power of the gospel, namely that our common relationship with Jesus creates an alternative identity, an identity that doesn't change the fact that we're black or white or Latino. It doesn't change the fact that we're male or female, that we're married or single. It doesn't change those realities, but what it does is it offers an identity that is more foundational and more significant. The result, friends, is that we ought not think of ourselves as white Christians or black Christians or Latino Christians or Asian Christians. We ought not think of ourselves as married Christians or single Christians. We ought to think of ourselves as a Christian who happens to be white, as a Christian who happens to be married, 
As a Christian who happens to be black, a Christian who happens to be Latino, a Christian who happens to be Asian, a Christian who happens to be single, because what happens is in the body of Christ, this Christ-centered identity of being a chosen race and a holy nation is the thing that gets underneath all other identities. And the effect when this is lived out is the world looks at us and says, how in the world do you get along? And the answer is, because we have an identity that supersedes all other identities. We have a king who supersedes all other kings. We have a passion that supersedes all other passions. We have a love that supersedes all other divisions, that there is something beautiful about this holy nation, this chosen race. What that, man, what that means, friends, is this, is that what is different about you as a Christian is so much greater than what is different about you in terms of ethnicity. In other words, exile is more foundational than ethnicity. And the beautiful thing of when the exile happens and when the exile becomes clear is suddenly the boundaries and the barriers that used to divide in a normal setting begin to go away because suddenly now Christians realize how deeply they need each other. This is important on another level. If you're part of a... If you're part of minority culture here at our church, it's a reminder that the reason you're here is not because all of the relationships around you go perfectly well. You're here because there's another identity underneath your ethnicity, namely, I'm a Christian, I'm here because I love Jesus. If you're a single adult and you have to deal with kind of all the challenges of what it means to be a single in the midst of most of programming at our church even now relates to married folks and that just gets old and tiresome, I understand it. The reason you're here though is not because you're married or single, you're here because you're a follower of Jesus. That there is this this identity that supersedes all other identities. You're a chosen race, a holy nation. And then finally this identity that says that you are God's people. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Verse nine, a people for his own possession. The final identity marker in verse nine is that you belong to God. Jesus said this in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and then he says this, and he says this to his disciples just before the crucifixion happens, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I wonder how many times they had to rehearse those words as they walked through seasons of difficulty. You see, when you're in a, disitu- in a situation that makes you realize you're in exile, you need the assurance and all kinds of other assurances in the Bible that you not only have eternal life, but that no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Not even the devil himself, not even you can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Christian exiles need to be reminded that they are God's people, that they've been graced by God with so much mercy, and that mindset that God is for me and not against me, that God is on my side, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Why, do you, why, why is that promise in Psalm 118 true? It's true because this text and others tell us that we belong to him. So maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe you need to be reminded of your value, your worth, your sense of purpose is rooted in God's possession of you. Maybe you just need to be reminded and hear it in your heart again that no one can take away from you that beautiful and precious relationship that you have with your king. No matter how bad, how difficult, how painful, 
it gets. You always belong to him. That's your identity. That's who you are. The final question, what is our mission? So there comes a moment this week and with a neighbor, with someone at work or a situation where you've got to cross the line and say, look, I, I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I, I can't do that or I'm going to tell you what I think about that or can I, can I share with you how you could receive the forgiveness of your sins and you know that there's going to be an awkward moment. You get about two seconds to be reminded. This is the plan of my life. Even if I'm rejected, it doesn't matter because God's got me. And then finally, what is the reason you're here in the first place? What's your mission? Here's what the text says. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is your mission? Your mission is to make much of the excellency of the one who saved you. Oh, how many times I've had to preach this truth to my own soul and remind me, Mark, life is not about you. It's about the exaltation of Christ. And I don't get to choose how he chooses to exalt himself through me. My aim is to make known the beauty of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, the reason God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light was not just so that you know where you're going to go when you die. The reason he did that is to platform on your life and all of its brokenness, but yet in its passion for Jesus, that there's something attractive, something worthy, something beautiful about who and what Jesus is. So our mission in life then is to make the beauty and the grace of God obvious to a watching world. God's placed you in your neighborhood so your neighbors can see the beautiful display of Christ's likeness in you. He's put you in the fraternity that you're in for that very purpose, in the particular Mom's Day Out group that you're in. He's put you in your place of business so that the excellencies of Christ can shine in and through you and when that comes in its clearest form is when the line of exile is drawn when that line comes you need to think it's go time this is what I've heard this is what the Bible talks about and therefore I can cross this line knowing that what's God's plan God's plan is to exalt Christ who am I? I am God's child, and he will never let me go. Even if this goes south, I'm still going to be okay. And what is my mission? My mission is somehow, someway to let my life reflect the beauty of Christ. So it's go time. The line is drawn. The exile opportunity is there. And Peter wants to encourage these Gentiles that by being living stones and God's people, it emboldens them to be able to make known the beauty of God's grace to a watching world because they're gonna know what God's plan is, gonna know who they are, and gonna clearly know what their mission is. For some of you, God has that in store for you coming up Monday, you just don't know it yet. He has some opportunity prepared for you in 2017, you just don't know it's there, and when it comes, my hope is you remember this message and remember North, south, east, and west, these are the questions that I can answer in my mind and heart so when God calls me to be in exile, I walk into that thinking, this is why I was redeemed, this is God's plan, and it is my joy to make known the beauty and glory of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, help us. We have lots of burdens and challenges that are all part of our lives and we need you to by your spirit help us know how to navigate the challenges that are in front of us the opportunities that are going to be there and when those moments come would you bring back this text and remind us who we are who you are and why we're here 
And now as we hear testimonies and witness the beauty of baptism, oh Lord, remind us that you have drawn these people out of darkness into, his, into your marvelous light, and the stories that we're about to hear are little emblems, little examples of how you are still at work. So let our hearts sing as we hear the beauty of your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.